We are continuing our journey through Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, marriage, sexuality, and gender, God's vision for men and women. And we understand what a daunting task this can be in the 21st century to have a conversation about. John Piper wrote this some time ago, and I think it's apropos for today. He says, the chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the human vision of marriage is and always has been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and the permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such low casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes towards marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. Interesting that Dr. Piper wrote that, preached that 13 years ago. And I would say that what was at that time ludicrous has almost morphed into unintelligible or nonsensical. To, to, to talk about the things we're going to talk about this morning culturally, we know this not theoretically, but, but in reality, are often seen as offensive, as outrageous, as hate-mongering. The gulf is indeed very great. Now, many in the larger evangelical church have kind of looked at that gulf and sort of concluded that because what we're talking about here is so unintelligible, so unreasonable, so unfathomable to our culture, that 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 this requires us to accommodate, to conform, to reform the biblical message in particular ways as to make it more palpable to our culture, to make it not quite so offensive. We need to reformulate our traditional biblical understandings of marriage and gender and sexuality, and, and you see that happening more and more. But here is, here is what is the what I consider a tragedy of, of that sort of move. You see, it never ends with marriage, does it? Marriage is just sort of the slippery slope, the tip of the iceberg. Because once we begin to, to kind of arbitrarily come to God's word and say, well, you know, did, did God really say, I mean, was, was, did Paul have all the information that we have? Did, did I mean, Moses live thousands of years prior to this? He surely could not have foreseen the way that human relationships have evolved. And, and, and certainly then these things were culturally conditioned. But here's the problem. When you begin to take that sort of hermeneutic or biblical interpretation, that sort of approach to the Bible, there's nothing to hinder you at that point. Everything becomes fair game. Everything is sort of reinterpreted under the guise of the spirit of the age. And ultimately, where you see so many of these folks, these voices, these camps go to is towards something that's just completely unrecognizable from biblical orthodox faith because you have to deny the core teachings, the plain teachings of the Bible to get there. So I think one of the things that, that Moses wants us to see from this text in Genesis 2 this morning is that marriage is not a peripheral theme of the Bible. 
Marriage is just not one of those, well, we can agree to disagree sorts of, sorts of issues. In fact, Ray Ortland calls marriage the grand narrative of the Bible. It is the one single unifying theme that unites all of Scripture from start to finish. We're going to see it this morning. Genesis 2 begins with the creation of marriage. The end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 ends with the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus, with us, his people. Ephesians 5 tells us, Paul tells us, that marriage, in fact, was created to be a type, to be a symbol, to be a picture, a parable of Christ and the church. Now, that, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. It's not like Paul was just writing about marriage and said, hmm, let me, or, let me just kind of think of a good example, or I'm going to write about salvation. Well, what is salvation? Like, it's kind of like marriage. That's not what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that God specifically created marriage anticipating the marriage that we, his people, were going to have with his son, Jesus Christ. And that when we were to look at that marriage, that eternal marriage, we were to understand something more about what our marriages are supposed to be like. In fact, marriage is so important that, do you know that Moses talks about it twice in these opening two chapters? The first time, he gives us the 40,000 foot view. He he, it's right in line with on day one and day two and day three, and then it gets to day six, and Moses talks about God creating man and woman in his image, in the image he created them. But here in chapter two, he returns to marriage once again, and this time he hits the pause button. He hits the slow motion button. It's like watching a basketball game or a football game, and you see a play that is so amazing and you're like, did I really see that? Did that really happen? Oh my goodness. In the first commercial break, you want to pause, you want to rewind, and you want to go back and watch it frame by frame. It is so amazing. That's what Moses is doing for us here in Genesis chapter 2. He's giving us the play-by-play. You see, marriage, and it's, it's no exaggeration to say this, is the climax of creation. It is, the, it is the revelation of God to his people that they are to be one man and one woman and one flesh and one covenant and one sexually exclusive relationship for one life. Genesis chapter 2 takes us from 40,000 feet down to ground level. And it says, here is what that looks like. Here is, this is pre-fall. This is before sin enters the world. This is, this is God's holy view of who you and I are called to be as men and women. Next week, we're going to talk about the fall, how all of this gets distorted, how all of this gets messed up. But today, we want to see the pure, unadulterated Word of God and just marinate in it. And let me just say a couple of things as we, as we jump off here. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what your background is. Um, I don't know the condition of your marriage or what number marriage you're on or if divorce is a part of your past. I don't know if, if you've been the victim of abuse in a relationship or a sexually unfaithful spouse. 
I don't know if your children may have gone astray in some of these areas. I know there are complexities upon complexities upon complexities when it comes to an issue like this. And when I get to the end of the sermon, there's a couple of places I want to point you for sort of, well, now what, Pastor Paul? We'll get there. But I think that, and as one of my seminary profs always said, if you qualify everything you say, you end up saying nothing. And I believe Genesis 2, we just need to bring our backgrounds, our experiences, our preconceived notions, our culturally conditioned minds and hearts to the Word of God and to let His Word have its way. I'm going to invite you to stand as sort of a symbol of standing under that Word, which we desperately need, particularly in these areas. We're going to read 11 verses beginning in verse 15 in chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. Now the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may be seated. We left off last week talking about this idea that if you want to boil marriage down to one singular construct, one singular idea or singular theme upon which we want to to bring our lives and hold them up to God's Word, it would simply be what Moses describes in Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. Oneness. Verse 24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, if you're using an older version of the Bible, like the King James Version, you might see the word cleave which sounds kind of ominous. You might have heard it in a marriage ceremony or ceremony that uses traditional vowels that has not updated them to contemporary language. But cleave is actually a really good word because to hold fast or to cleave literally means to solder two parts of metal together like a welder would do. That These pieces were not meant to be separated. They were meant to to be firm and pulled together. In fact, one. Oneness, and please hear this, is a comprehensive unity. 
Oneness is a one flesh, man and woman relationship. Now listen, where all boundaries disappear. Where there is total openness, total access, total solidarity. The question we want to ask is, Pastor Paul, how do we get there? How do we know when we're there? What does it look like? And in two points in this message, we're going to sort of situate everything under both of these headings as we ask what it means to be one flesh, what does it mean to be uniquely man and woman made in God's image in biblical perspective in relationship together. Head is point number one. Helper is point number two. These are both ideas, words that come from the text, and let's dive into it. What do we mean when we say that the man is the head of the home and of the marriage? What we mean is that because God created Adam first, he gave Adam ultimate responsibility for everything that happened in the garden. Now, we we see this beginning in verse 19, look there, where God tasked Adam with naming all the animals. And we typically think about this as like something kind of fun, right? Something cool, like a circus, like where all the animals line up. I think about, if you're a child of the 70s like me, I think about the old schoolhouse rock videos where they taught us to count by counting the animals piling onto Noah's Ark. Does anybody remember this? This was on public television, by the way. And so, so we, we kind of think about it that way. This is something kind of fun or creative, and we're learning to count Because this is no trivial, insignificant thing that God has delegated to Adam. You see, in the ancient Near East, naming someone was a massive responsibility. It required a level of authority, of leadership. Remember in the Gospels when John uh, John the Baptist was born and Zechariah was struck mute? because of his lack of belief. Even when John the Baptist was born, what what did they go and ask Zechariah? They said, Zechariah, what what do we name this child? Now, why did they approach Zechariah and ask him that? Because he was given ultimate responsibility to lead that home, and it was signified by this naming. Now, Now, Ladies, I hope you have not given such responsibility to any of the men in this room, because we, we understand what the, they, they, they wouldn't know what they were doing. We, we, we get that, right? It, it, it's, it's a cultural thing, but in that culture, naming was denoted with this idea of authority. See, this authority, now this is this an interesting, who has done all of the naming up to this point in days one through five? And if a pastor ever asks you a question in the sermon, it's usually, answer is usually God, right? Or Jesus. So who, who did all the naming up to this point? God. The darkness and the light and the first day and the second day and all of creation. However, when he gets to the sixth day and he's made man, he says, Adam, I'm going to give you a responsibility here. I'm going to give you an authority. It is now your job to name all of the animals. Adam, this is a symbol of the fact that you were tasked with the responsibility, the leadership, 
the protection and provision of everything that happens in this place called Eden. And it begins with this idea of leaving. Look back at verse 24. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. What does that mean? Literally, the word leave means forsaking or to leave destitute. Now, understand something. We're not talking about geography. We're not talking about the fact of of, of young man, move out of your parents' house, get off the Xbox, go find a wife, although that's totally clearly in view, right? But that, that's not what Moses is talking about here. In, in the ancient culture, remember, it was actually the woman who left her home to come live with the man sort of on the family compound. So we think about this, remember, with Isaac and, and Rebecca, and he is sent out and he brings Rebecca back as a, a wife, to live with the clan. It's not talking about geography when it says, for this reason a man shall leave. In fact, you could read this, for this, for this reason a man shall forsake or leave destitute his father and mother. What, 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 what is Moses saying here? He's saying, men, this is now the number one priority in your life. This is now the number one relationship for which you are responsible. Marriage is to have primacy over every other relationship. Ray Ortland says it this way. He says, even parental claims must yield to the primacy of marriage. So must all other bonds, however strong. I mean, there's, and women, there have been people who've been married dozens of years, three decades, four decades, who've never left mother and father. There are competing priorities. There are, mom and dad can be in the grave or at home with the Lord People still struggle with this fundamental reality. Men, and I I do address this to men because I believe there is a a particular responsibility. Because when it says that the man shall leave, it's putting an onus. It's putting a responsibility. It's, It's setting forth a pattern of initiative to say, men, when you marry, everything changes. Everything your priorities, the way that you view life, the way that you approach things, what you do with your hobbies, what you do with your interests, what you do with your travel. Man, let me just ask you this simple question. What has a claim on your life? If I were to take you and your wife out to coffee, and if I were to ask your wife, tell me just, for instance, what relationship in your husband's life has primacy? Or, or what things in your husband's life have priority? Now, I'd encourage you, men, and this, I mean, I double-dog dare you to do this, okay? Go home today, and instead of watching the PGA Championship on television, turn it off and ask your wife that question and just listen to what she says. Now, I've already asked my wife this question, so I get to watch the PGA Championship today. (laughs) You get what I'm saying. Now, now, guys, it's easy 
to give lip service to this. Oh, Pastor Paul, of course, my wife knows that. Really? Does she, does, does she, does she see your words match up with your reality? Does she feel this? So one thing we want to say, leadership, responsibility in the home means there is a primacy of the marriage relationship to every, that, that trumps everything else. Now there, you understand there's a, a million qualifiers I could put in there right now, okay? Don't have time. But you get, you get where I'm going. You get what I'm, what I'm saying. Husbands, do you view your wives as an obstacle to sort of get around, get through, get over, get under in order to do what you really want to do? Or is she someone who knows to the core of her being that he has forsaken all others? That he has, that he has, that he has given up his claim on whatever it is that has supplanted me as the priority relationships. That's one thing it means. The second thing this idea of headship means, it denotes responsibility. Go back to the text for for a second. So we know here in verse 15 that the Lord God put the man, look at verse 15, in the garden to work it, it says, and to keep it. Now that word keep literally means to stand guard. God gave Adam this garden and he put him on his post and he told him, be on guard, be on the lookout. Now we're going to see the tragic effects of this next week in Genesis chapter three, but we know that sin already exists in the cosmos, right? Because Satan has already rebelled. God knows this and he puts Adam and says, whatever happens here, it's ultimately Adam, your responsibility. Now, now understand something. We'll see this next week. Eve certainly sins and sins first. She is culpable for that. But men, let me just ask you something. When, when, when Adam and Eve are hiding in shame, where does God go to first? He doesn't eat. Eve is almost like an afterthought. He's like, Adam, what have you done? Isn't it also interesting in, in Romans chapter 5, when Paul is describing how righteousness has come through Christ, but how sin has come through one man, doesn't even mention Eve. He says all sin has come through Adam. Now, now what is that telling us? It's telling us that, that husbands, men in the home, in the church, which we can't talk about now, have an ultimate responsibility to guard, to keep. Men, I firmly believe this when I say this. Wherever your family finds itself this season is a reflection of your leadership and my leadership. Money, kids, technology, relationships, priorities, scheduling, but our favorite shuffle is to do what Adam did, which is, but Lord, this woman or this thing or this thing or this thing. And understand, God's like, I, Adam, I've got that. I'm, I've got words to say to everybody. There's, 
doesn't mean that the man is culpable for everything in the home, but it means at the end of the day, he is responsible. It's a reflection of his headship. Man, I, I want you to know something this morning. I don't say these things just as your pastor. I say them as your fellow brother. I say them as your, as your friend. I've had a whole week to get wrecked by this text, okay? I've had, I've, had, I've had a whole week to kind of pull myself together to come up here and kind of unpack this. I know this is fresh for you. I mean, you're thinking about the summer. You're thinking about the PGA. You're thinking about graduate. You're thinking about a hundred things. But this is, isn't that the way God works? He wants to get our attention. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, that's great, but where do I start I don't, I don't even know where to start. Should I just like go home and like insist on my leadership in the home? Not if you want to live to tell about it, right? That's not what you do. What is the first thing that Adam says to Eve when God brings her to him? Verse 23, at last, at last. Finally, in other words, Adam sings over his wife. Adam exalts in her. He rejoices over her. He, he's caught up in song. You know, this is the first poem in all of the Bible. It is literally, and this is not pastoral hyperbole, the first love song. Men, some of you can't sing, okay? And, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm with you. And so I'm not going to advocate you do something terribly embarrassing, but do you sing to your wife ever? <laughs> do, do, do you metaphorically sing over her? Does she know that she is the delight of your eyes and that you exult in her and that you are rejoicing over her? Men, if you want to be empowered in your leadership, pucker up, Right? <laughs> Start singing, warm up the vocal cords. You get what I'm saying. Here's a great quote from Matthew Henry, and then we're going to go to the second point. It's something you might have heard in wedding ceremonies. He wrote this hundreds of years ago. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, either out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Man, you, you, you may be saying, but you just don't know my situation. You don't know the grief, the conflict, the strife, the, the baggage, what I've done, what my wife's done. I do know that though, men, in the image of God, this is who he has created you to be, and this is who he has created your wife to be, women to be, men to be. Let's look at women. Number two, helper. Now, I mentioned this last week. You can imagine sort of Adam's, I mean, just the awkwardness of this parade of animals. And Adam is looking for his mate, his compliment. He sees all these animals coming in two. He's just one. And it tells us that God's verdict that Moses is, in fact, this is what God says. Look at verse 18. It says, it is not good that man should be alone. That does mean it is not optimal. Okay. Or it was, it was kind of okay. 
dude was doing just fine. He was doing his thing. But God brought a blessing. No, 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 no. It means negative in the strongest possible terms. Man was not meant to be alone. And not only that, but he required a helper that was suitable. The word is literally a perfect fit, a perfect match. It's kind of like those... Those, when you're working a puzzle this summer, if you go on a, you know, do one of those 10,000 word puzzles that you work all throughout the week and you kind of fiddle around on it and you, and there's these pieces that never fit, but like the amazing awesomeness when you're like, I found two that match, you know, always that ecstatic feeling. Maybe it's just me, but anyway, you get what I'm saying, right? That's, that's what's happening here. And it says that God put the man to sleep and Shout out to our anesthesiologist here in the audience this morning. Deep, deep sleep, and he took out a rib. Now, we like to think about this as like, oh, a rib. You know, kind of like one of those nice, clean, white, shiny cadaver bones. Like, here's a rib. It's kind of cool. And that's, that's I don't think that's what's going on here. Because what does Adam say? This at last, verse 23, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, when it talks about God opening up Adam and he's taking out the bone and the flesh and the blood and the tissue and he begins to shape it. Now, it's interesting that this word fashioned or shaped, it literally means to build. In other words, God began constructing the woman God began to craft the woman. That's the idea. It's like one of those pots that you mold, it spins around, and you're sculpting and getting it right. That is not how God created man, right? God created man out of the dirt. I don't think these things are metaphorical or insignificant, by the way. When you think about dirt or ground that's hard and sturdy and strong, And then we think about this beautiful sculpture that's being crafted by God himself. You understand why Adam had his Jerry Maguire moment. You know what I mean? Okay. Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Okay. You get the whole thing, right? That's That's where Adam is going. He greets her with relief, with ecstasy at last. Yes, finally. This is my counterpart in every way. She's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. See, this, this idea of coming out of Adam, there is this intimacy, there is this closeness. Parents, let me just try to, you, you remember when your first child was born? And this is the, it was the effect for all of our children. But the first time you see your child, you're like, there's something of me in that child. And there's something of my spouse in that child. And it's completely unique. It's, it's wonderful. That's why Paul says, love your wives, husbands, as your own flesh. Because parents, wouldn't you, wouldn't you do anything to protect the life of that child? Wouldn't, wouldn't you stand guard over your child's bed if you thought there was the, the least inkling of harm? See, this, this is the nature of closeness that God is painting for us, for what it means to be men and women. And that does not happen when we are identical. It happens when we are distinct, different, equal. And God calls her, what does he call her? We'll go back to the text. 
Verse 18, helper, helper. Now, some of us are going to really chafe. Some of you ladies are going to really chafe at this word helper because for you, culturally, it, it means inferiority. Just like this idea of hierarchy denotes inequality or oppression. But I want you to consider something for a second. This word that, that Moses uses here for helper is the same word that comes from Psalm 54.4. Let's flash that on the screen a second. Psalm 54.4. Can we get that? There we go. Listen to this. This is David talking. He says, Behold, God is what? My helper. Same word. The Lord is the upholder of my life. What is Moses telling here? Ladies, the grandest, greatest, holiest, most divine of all callings that you can have is to be an upholder, is to be an empowerer, is to be an encourager. Understand something, this is is not addressing in the least at all all the many, many questions we have when we come to texts like this and should we work and how much and all the, that's not the point here. The point is, is that God had given Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 a task. He said, be fruitful, be multiply, fulfill and subdue the earth together. And that man, your job is that I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you with the executive report, the summary to find out, did we get to where we're supposed to go? And women, I'm looking to you to ride shotgun with your man to empower him, to encourage him, to lift him up to, as Psalm 54 tells us, to be an upholder. See, I think this is what Paul means when he talks about submission in Ephesians chapter 5. Here's, I don't have this on a slide, but here's a great definition of, of submission by, by Piper. He says, submission is a wife's divine calling. Do you hear that? Calling. To honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Women, there is no greater calling because it's part of God's design. Do you, un- do you know that if you denigrate this idea of helpmate and helper, that you actually denigrate the deity of Christ? And here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see this? See what Paul's saying? See, he's saying the Father and the Son were in mutual cooperation together. They had a mission, they had a plan, and they were were working together to carry it out. The Father was the head. He was decreeing. He was sending out the Son. The Son was laying down His life. But they were both working in total oneness 
in order to fulfill the mission of redemption. See, this is, this is the picture, women, that God gives you. It gives us to be the upholder. And in doing so, you walk the path of Jesus Christ. You are imitating him. I was talking to somebody after the, the first service who said they were, he's from Alaska. They're going home um, to Alaska this summer. And we were talking about the Iditarod. You know, that's the race where the sled dogs, the teams of 14, 16 dogs, they race about 1,000 miles from, from Anchorage up to, to Nome. And these dogs train and train, and it's a grueling race, right? No, no, no animal rights emails this week, please. Thank you. Because ju- just an illustration, not meant to harm anyone in the, in the telling of this illustration. But, you know, not every team makes it. Not every dog makes it. But the lead dog is there to steer the team. But the lead dog has to obey the commands of the, of the musher, right? He's the, he's, he's the guy giving the commands and, and driving the dogs. And in a lot of ways, and again, no, no analogy is perfect, but there's this idea that, that God is giving us directives, giving us orders, giving us commands. And as husbands, we're being obedient to that. We're being responsible to that. But any musher will tell you, unless that sled of dogs is pulling together, unless they are in unity, unless they're in tandem, then that sled is going nowhere. Women, just a, just a, a harmless kind of question. And, and you can ask your husband this question okay, during the PGA Championship. You have my permission to do that. Okay? Just don't let me know about it until, until afterwards. You get it? A- ask him this question. Honey, do you feel like I'm pulling with you? Or do you feel like I'm more kind of like yipping at your heels? Do, do, you, do you feel me pacing beside you? Do you feel me encouraging you? Do you feel me supporting you? Or do you feel like I've just kind of quit in the race? Now, women, let me just say something. There might be very good reasons why you have quit that go beyond the complexities of this message. But ladies, ask the question. Guys, 25, and we're going to end with this, closes with just this amazing statement. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One of the things we said last week is that oneness is more than being sexual. However, it's never less than that. See, sex is both a picture of oneness. Now listen to this. This is the hard one. It's also an indicator of oneness. See, a question that both husband and wife should ask themselves, and it's a scary question. But the question is, what does our sexual relationship communicate about our oneness? What what, what does our sexual life tell us about how we are doing and where we are one and where we are not? All I would say is just talk about that. 
and just pray about that. And then avail yourself of a couple of resources I have, and we're going to be done. Number one, guys, I, I understand this sermon, this text applies a million different ways to a million different people. There's, there's those of you who have complex situations, who are, are in the midst of very difficult circumstances. We want you to know, number one, as pastors and elders, we want to walk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to come alongside of you. Us and our wives, we want to make ourselves available to you. We don't want to just sort of roll the ball out there and say, go for it, good luck. No, no, no. We want to walk alongside of you. Just please let us know how we can do that. But, but a second thing I do want to point you more proactively to is something that Pastor Scott and a number of of mature marital couples in our church have been involved with piloting, and that's our re-engage marriage program. If, if you came to the date night that we had a couple, couple weeks ago with Chris and Jen Schultz, you, you'll remember this. But this is a, a marriage enrichment program that, that beginning in the fall meets weekly. It's centered around teaching large group testimonies. There's breaking out into smaller groups where marital couples are um, being mentored by and led by older mentor couples. There's, there's weekly sort of homework assignment, how to apply God's word to your marriage. It runs, uh, Scott, Scott say can give you more information. You can go to Church, forkscalarn.com to get more information. It starts in the fall. It runs over 10, 8, 10, 12 weeks. I'm not sure, it just, but it runs over a season. No matter where you are in your marriage, whether you're a newlywed and don't realize you have problems yet, okay? Or, or, or whether you think you have a good marriage and you just want to grow closer together. Or maybe you're kind of struggling in your marriage. Or maybe your marriage is really broken and needs rescue. All of these would be, this, 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 this re-engage redemption program would be an amazing opportunity for you. Let me just say this as we close today. Just as much as our marriages are to be a picture of the gospel, let's be honest, our marriages need the gospel. We do. We're, we're broken people. We mess up. And, and we're, we're sitting under the conviction of this word. I hope you are. Men, women, marriages, all of us desperately need the mercy and grace of God which he provides for us through his son, Jesus Christ. I believe God wants more for us in our marriages, but not just so that we can have a better life, but so that we can bring more glory to him. Let's pray.